Oh, would you guys pray with me real quick? Lord, we thank you and we need you, every one of us, um, no matter what walk of life we are from, where we come from, our ethnicity, our financial situation, our relational situations. God, we all come here with baggage and there is beauty in the diversity that you have brought into your body, God. And as we look at your text this morning, just pray, God, uh, that you would just be in the midst of us, Spirit, that you would work in our hearts to convict us, to draw us closer to you in relationship and draw us into closer relationship with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as Andrew said, my name is Matt, and I feel weird saying I'm the pastoral intern. We used to have multiple, but I'm the pastoral intern. Um, So it's good to be here with you. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead. Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to be. But before you turn there or start flipping in your phone, we're going to start in Acts chapter 8, verses 39 and 40. That should be on page 917 in the Pew Bibles. And while you're doing that, let's consider some of the things we looked at last week in order to give ourselves a little context. So last week, we looked at a pretty specific uh, condition of the church in the first century. This condition was that it was made up primarily of Jewish followers. And so we asked two questions. One of the questions was, what happened in the church that it came to include both Jew and Gentile, so this is non-Jews, so many of us in this room, and who was the person that went on to lead this initial movement in order to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so if we look at chapter 8, we see in the beginning, we see this brief introduction to Paul, and then if we go to verse 26, there's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And What happens is Philip is doing his ministry, runs into an Ethiopian eunuch, and he shares the gospel with him uh, via pointing to Isaiah and Jesus as being the Jewish Messiah. And this Ethiopian eunuch comes to Christ and is baptized. And what we read in verse 39 and 40 is this. And when they came up, or, and when they, they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So we have to ask the question then, if people are coming to Christ through Philip's ministry, then why did he just stop at Caesarea? Why was that the boundary marker of why he just... He came there, and that was it. I'm not going to preach the gospel to this town anymore. And so we have to remember that in the beginning of Acts, Jesus promises that the gospel will go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you're looking at a map, you'll see Jerusalem, and then the surrounding region is Judea. Then right above that is Samaria. And right on the top of the Samaritan border, right on the other side of it, is Caesarea. And so what's happening is in light of Jesus' promise, Caesarea is in the to the ends of the earth portion of Jesus' description here. And that is not for Philip to preach the gospel to. So we're getting into more Gentile territory. And so that begs the, the, the next question, who is going to then go into that territory and preach the gospel? So that's chapter 8. Last week we got into chapter 9. And chapter 9 introduced us to Paul. And Paul is a Jewish man who converts uh, to Christianity in this miraculous situation. And in verse 15 of chapter 9, 
God says that Paul is going to be the man to take his name before the Gentiles. So now we have that answer. But we still have the question based on the fact that the early church didn't even understand that Gentiles were supposed to be included in the body of Christ. They still didn't have this conception yet. So what circumstances took place in order for them to grasp this, in order for them to get that coming to Christ was for all peoples, that God wanted all nations to come and to know him and share in fellowship. And so that's what we run into in chapter 10, and that's the text we're going to be looking at. So now you can go there, page 918, and would you guys stand um, in honor of just God's word and work? I think this is pretty significant for most of us because most of us in this room would be considered Gentiles, and if it wasn't for this moment here, then many of us wouldn't be admitted into the body of Christ. And so let's consider God's amazing work here. It says, chapter 10, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants a devout sol- and a devout soldier from among them who, attend- who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked, and as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So this, 
So when I was sent for, I came without objection, and I, I, uh, I asked why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They have put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in, in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of God. You can have a seat. All right, so I think... I appreciate y'all bearing with me. That was kind of long. Uh, so this text is pretty straightforward as we look at it, with maybe the exception of this sheet of animals coming down from the sky. But if you've been tracking with us in Acts, and that just kind of might be like an at-happens kind of moment for you. It gets a little rowdy in the text. But um, I, this text is a big deal, like I said. So what makes it such a big deal? And it's significant because it's confronting the early church on a social and cultural issue. And if we look at it in our context, it confronts us pretty heavily as well. It shows us that we're not good enough, but that Jesus is good enough. It shows us that we like to create relational boundaries between one another, but Jesus, through the gospel, is tearing them down. And it shows us that we like to get lost in the forest, but Jesus continually is showing us a way out. And I'll explain that last one a little bit more towards the end. But before we dive into the actual story of the text, I want to share a little bit of my background and story. So most people that know me uh, understand that I grew up for much of my life in Florida from the ages of about 12 to 18 until I moved up here for college. Uh, but prior to that, I was born and raised in a northeast suburb of Philadelphia. And for me, this is what I conceptualized as home. And uh, it was what I would think of in my, my young 12-year-old hopeless romantic mind as the golden years, I suppose. And, you know, nice house, good friends, good school, everything seemed to be 
going smoothly until the day my parents told, told me we were moving just a little bit south of Tampa to the other end of the country. And as you can imagine, it was like having the rug pulled out from under me, and I was less than thrilled about it. I'm a bit embarrassed about my reaction when they first told me, but it was because I had this idea that Pennsylvania was what constituted home. And thankfully, God has uh, helped me to grow in my understanding of that, but he's helped me to see that home is not where people are, and home is not where we're most comfortable, and home is not a certain place that we like to escape to, but home is God himself. And so I want us to kind of sit and reflect on that. Just remember this concept because this metaphor is going to continually be coming up in a variety of ways as we look at the text. So hold on to that idea, and let's look at the text here. So we have a man named Cornelius, starting in verse 1. And Cornelius is two things. He is a God-fearer, and he is a centurion. And so we'll start with the second one. A centurion, he, would, he was at the coastal city of Caesarea, and he would have overseen, from a military perspective, probably a little less, but about, about 100 men. So he is a man of some kind of authority. On the other hand, he is a God-fearer, and this doesn't mean somebody that is afraid of God. It is kind of the equivalent of a uh, halfway Jew, as we would have it. Uh, he is a Gentile, so he is a non-Jew, but he has an appreciation for Jewish culture. He is starting to participate in the rituals and the customs of, of, of Judaism. He uh, believes in Yahweh that he is the one to, true God. He just respects the faith as a whole, but he hasn't gone so far as to get circumcised, which would have made him a full Jew, would have, uh, a proselyte, as they would have called it. So he has gone only part of the way, but hasn't fully been circumcised and gone all the way. I think an equivalent for this in the church would be uh, seekers. So we consider seekers to be people who haven't given their life to Christ, but they're interested and they're coming and they're participating and they're learning more about what it all entails. That's what Cornelius is, except he's a seeker for Judaism. Now, if we look, he's described as a pretty good guy, right? He, he fears God with his household. He's a devout man. He gives alms generously to the people, and he prays continually to God. So by all measures of his culture, he is a pretty good dude. But we see something when we look very closely at the text, and we don't actually have to look that closely. We see that there's 46 more verses in this chapter. So what does this tell us? That it doesn't end with the idea that Cornelius is a good guy because pretty quickly we see God going into the mission of getting the gospel to him. So clearly whatever efforts or good works that this man is doing, they are not enough for him to have a sufficient relationship with God. There is something missing. And by the way God reacts to get the gospel to him, clearly the thing that is missing is Jesus. Church, even our best attempts at doing good things and pleasing God fall short in light of the ways that we have disobeyed him. I mean, how much of a reality check is this? We look outside our church walls, and regardless of what people are believing about God or not, they're still trying to meet a standard. They're going day in and day out thinking, am I good enough? Do people think I'm good enough? But here's the thing. This sounds depressing, but in reality, if we put this on a backdrop, it creates this kind of dark screen that the gospel can shine in as we look at God's work. 
right? The standard that we're trying to meet is not our identity because Jesus has already achieved what we couldn't do. We're constantly trying to find value in comfort in what we're doing. I mean, imagine the first thing you say when you meet somebody new is, how are you doing and what do you do? Like, that is what makes them up. Like, th that, is, that is the essence of who they are. We have to ask ourselves why we continue to do this, why we continue to try to meet a standard when the standard is perfection and Jesus is already offering us the gift and the reward of living a perfect life. Now, I said earlier that God himself is our home. So the question is, if we're going to use an illustration, why do we continue to build our own houses and then idolize them and try and make them our home and then show God like he's going to be impressed with us? Hear this clearly. This is one of the most important things that you can hear. In Christ, you weren't first called to obedience. You weren't first called to do something. You were called to a relationship, and out of the relationship, the Spirit works obedience in your life. So, church, if you want, if you want to have a more courageous faith, if you want to be more obedient, if you want to grow in, in knowing Christ, then you need to stop trying to build a home for yourself, and you need to start getting to know the architect. Now, back in our text, if we look at biblical history, up until this point, we have traced the, the, the history of the nation of Israel. And Israel was called to be something very specific. They were called to be holy. And if you don't know what holy means on a, on a surface level, it means to be set apart or to be different. And the goal was that Israel was going to be holy. They were going to be different, and this difference would attract other nations to them so that they could get to know God. This is kind of similar. I was trying to think of an equivalent for us. And if we go down the road a little bit, we run into uptown. And it made me think of hipster culture a little bit. Hipster culture, the ethos of it is there is value in being different than the rest of society. And that is an attractive feature to them. And so when we look at Israel, that was who they were supposed to be. They're not hipsters, but they were supposed to, <laughs> they're supposed to be different. And this is supposed to attract the nations. But what do we actually find out happens? Whether intentionally or unintentionally, if their home was supposed to be God and the Israelites were supposed to take shelter in him and call the nation to join them, what they actually did was they built a relational fence around this home and they put this sign up that said, Gentiles keep out. We see this pretty clearly as we look at Peter's reaction to this sheet coming out of the sky. The sheet is coming down, and within the sheet are animals that would have been ritually unclean according to Jewish law. And Peter is appalled. God is telling him to eat this, and he doesn't know what's happening. God, why are you sending me this? Is this even you giving me this vision? What, what God has made clean, don't call common. What, what does that even mean, God? It, and then 40 miles away in Caesarea, you have this Gentile man, Cornelius, and he's having a God-ordained vision. It, it's like anarchy among the community of God. But in all of this confusion, there is beauty coming out of it. We see God starting to move powerfully in the life of a Gentile. We see Cornelius' men entering Peter's home. And then likewise, when Peter goes to visit them, he enters their home. This is 
groundbreaking from a societal perspective for a Jew and a Gentile to be under the same house. We see barriers coming down between people as God is at work. Now, Peter doesn't still get it because he goes on to ask, why have you sent for me? But we do see that the fence that was built around that home is being pulled up stake by stake. Just think about how much this applies to us today. Uh, a big bu uh, buzzword is reconciliation right now. This is a huge theme in our culture, uh, specifically racial reconciliation. And while we read in scripture about how Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead and he offers us eternal life, there's something even more specific that Jesus brings us, that Paul brings to light in 2 Corinthians. He says Jesus is ushering in a ministry of reconciliation. Jesus' blood doesn't just bring us to know God. It brings us into knowledge of each other. God is not saving us to just himself. He is saving us into a community that is called the church. We need to learn from Peter's poor example of what it means to miss the point. He was missing that the church was supposed to be a new Israel, a light to the nations that included both Jew and Gentile. We can't forget, no matter what, regardless of religion or acts done, guilty or innocent. In fact, scripture says we are all guilty, but according to human standards, no matter what you have done, you are made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God because he created them and he breathed life into them. That means something. As C.S. Lewis puts it, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Friends, we see here in this text that social and cultural dividers are coming down, but God doesn't want to stop there. He wants to work to remove ethnic, financial, political, whatever it is, barriers between us. I mean, can we honestly say that we're living out what Galatians 3 says, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If we claim to be followers of Christ, then we can't just start uprooting this fence one stake at a time. It is our duty to burn the fence down that people could come to God and worship him. So now we have Cornelius the Gentile and Peter the Jew, and they're both receiving confirming visions that we can tell God is working in their life. And Peter is still trying to figure out what's going on. So he comes to Cornelius, and I'm paraphrasing, and he says, dude, why have you called me here? And Cornelius' response is, bro, you're supposed to tell me what God told you. And it seems like in that moment, something clicks for him. He finally gets it to a degree. I'm supposed to preach the gospel to these people that aren't Jewish, to these Gentiles. So what does Peter do? He jumps on the opportunity because clearly God is doing something crazy. He, he takes a step of faith in obedience to who God is, and he shares the gospel with these Gentiles. 
And what do we see but the Holy Spirit falling on a people that they couldn't even have conceived of being saved? The Holy Spirit falls, and they're speaking in tongues, and they're worshiping and extolling God. And then we read later on in verses 46 to 47 that the Jewish men who are with Peter, are this is their response, really, the Gentiles are getting the Holy Spirit? Like, they're still not understanding. Like, I don't know how much clearer it can be when the Spirit is coming on Gentiles. They're speaking in tongues and praising God and coming to Christ. I mean, these are Jewish people who claim to be descendants of Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that he will make him into a great nation and kings are going to come from him and he will be blessed to be a blessing. Then somehow in the, the between pages 9 and 919, at least in my Bible, they missed the point. They forgot it. Think of it like this. If God was sowing seeds with Old Testament law, these seeds grew into trees. And these people here with the Gentiles in this text, they got so lost looking at the beauty of the trees that they forgot that those trees were supposed to be built into a shelter. And if they would have built that shelter, they would have seen that it didn't look like obligations and it didn't look like rules, but it looked like Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the details that they were getting lost in. Church, we can't get lost in the forest. There is plenty of room in this home that we call God for all to come to him. We have to ask ourselves, though, if there's enough room in our hearts that we're going to be willing to go out in the power of the Spirit and share the gospel with them. Here at Park, we claim that we are sons and daughters who pursue God and brothers and sisters who practice his commands, but we claim that we're neighbors and witnesses who proclaim the gospel. And church, God is not only our home, but he is our father. And that makes us family, and we have no right denying anybody entrance into this family. In a moment, Ben and the worship team, they're going to come up, and we're going to take some time to reflect on God's goodness and what it means that he has called all people, Jew, Gentile, whatever, all in Christ, to be one in him, to be one family. And if you don't know what it means to be reconciled to God, then I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what standards are you living for? And why do you keep living for them when Jesus has already achieved the standard of perfection on your behalf? And if you are a follower of Christ, there's a couple of things uh, that I want us to reflect on if you need some guidance. So the first thing I want us to think about is in what ways are you trying to build your own home in an effort to please God or others? Because if we're in Christ, we have to let Jesus justify us and respond in humble joy. Are there boundaries that you have built between certain people that you are letting hinder the spread of the gospel? We have to get over our own reactions and feelings regarding different people and people groups because our hatred and even our indifference towards other people are insults to the love that God has for them. Finally, what other things, whether good or bad, are you letting be your home instead of God? These things might not even be inherently wrong in and of themselves, 
but they cannot eternally satisfy our souls. Friends, we have good news in Christ, and we've been put on a mission. Let's make it our main priority to get our broken hearts out of the way and respond in a redeemed nature in order to get the good news to all nations. Let's pray. Lord, we, we read that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, that all are one in Christ. And we praise you that that reality is, in fact, true. God, you do not exclude anyone. All that you ask is that we come to trust you as Lord. So God, we pray for our community. We pray that those that don't know you would come to know you. We pray that we would walk as kingdom ambassadors. We pray that we would be empowered by your spirit to speak the words you desire us to speak, that we would be demonstrations of love because you are the epitome of love. So God, we submit to you this morning. We just pray for guidance and discernment in our relationships at work, in our everyday life. I pray that we would be faithful gospel witnesses keeping our eyes on Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.